You're listening to Golf Yeah, your masterclass in the lives, lessons, and aspirations of people who've built successful businesses and rewarding careers based on their love for the game of golf. Whether it's the obstacles they faced, the success they've achieved, or advice they offer, Golf Yeah provides the motivation and blueprint to convert your passion for golf into a full or part-time endeavor. Or maybe you just enjoy hearing stories from people who know a hell of a lot about the game. Either way, let's start exploring the business side of golf with your host, Gordon Andrew. Peter Cowan is a PGA professional with a seven-page resume. Seriously, seven pages. And he's still a relatively young man. Relatively. For the past 21 years, Peter has been head professional at North Fork Country Club in Cutchog, Long Island. And North Fork was established in 1912 and was originally a nine-hole course designed by Donald Ross. Before joining North Fork, Peter served as an assistant pro at two other respected golf clubs on Long Island, including the Creek Club and Mill River. He was also an assistant pro at Brooklyn Country Club in Connecticut and Casino Golf Club in Flushing, New York. What makes Peter's story particularly interesting is where he started out, which was not on a golf course, but in a kitchen. Before shifting his career path from food service to golf, Peter was a chef at the Gresham Hotel in Dublin, head chef at three New York City restaurants, including John Barleycorn, as the rounds chef at the Hilton Hotel and executive sous chef at the Barbizon Hotel. Peter's seven-page long resume also contains an extensive list of golf-related training and professional achievements, including Met PGA Lincoln Pro-Am Most Active Professional for both 2014 and 2015, which is no surprise. In addition to his post at North Fork, Peter is currently a PGA Magazine Ambassador, Golf Tour Consultant for Destinations Golf and Leisure Magazine, and some of the places he's taken golfers over the past five years alone, not including trips to Scotland and Ireland, include Italy, Switzerland, Puerto Rico, and Morocco. In his spare time, he's a husband and father of three girls, one of whom is engaged to be married next year. So congratulations on that news, Peter, and welcome to Golfia as our first guest. First guest, wow. <laughs> Listen, in the interest of full disclosure, I've known Peter for 30 years uh, since his uh, stint as an assistant pro at Brooklyn Country Club. And he's my first guest, not only because he exemplifies someone whose passion for golf drove him to change careers, but he's also fun to talk to, as you'll see. So my first question, Peter, it says on your resume that one of your hobbies is swimming. Really? Pretty much, yeah. Come on. Yeah. How often do you swim? I have a pool, so uh, a lot. Oh, you have your own pool? Yeah, I have a pool. Oh, yeah. oh I you didn't know, know that. Head pros make money, you know? You know? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Listen, going back to my early years with you, you once told me that your father put rocks in your golf bag to wear, wear you out to slow your swing down. Yes, that's actually very true. Yep. My father was a, a very good golfer in his own right. Gary Player was his idol. Because he used to love getting out of the bunkers like Gary Player. And my father was also a gambler. So he liked to have his weekly game with his friends in Ireland growing up. And so we would play as a team against two other guys in a foursome. And I was about 13, 14, 15 years old, whatever it was. And I would be swinging to kill the golf ball for the first six or seven holes. And once I slowed down, I would play a lot better. So he'd have his wager on the front nine and double it in the back nine. And he'd win money at the end of the day. But he'd make me carry my bag, his bag, and rocks in both bags, yeah. <laughs> Did you play any famous courses when you were over in Ireland as a kid? Or was there a home? Oh, yeah, we played. No, no, we had, well, we played uh, Royal Dublin a lot. I played Pomardic. I played all the all the great clubs in Dublin. But we also traveled to my mother. 
I was from County Kerry, so we would spend the summers down there where I had a chance to play Waterville, Valley, Bunyan, Tralee, uh, another great course that's there. Now Oldhead was not around at the time, but, but there's so many great courses in Ireland from the south to the north and in, everything in between. And you played them as a kid. I played them as a kid, yeah. I'll tell you one funny story that happened. Uh, my father was uh, playing. Uh, I was supposed to play with him with Chris O'Connor Jr. And a golf course, I believe now, i got to check my memory, it was Carlo Golf Club, if I'm a remember. But Chris O'Connor Jr. was the, the architect of the golf course. We're going, driving there to play this golf course. Now, we weren't actually playing with Chris, but he was there. But we were playing in this tournament. I was not a very good traveler back in the day, like sitting in the car, just couldn't do it. So my father would give me like uh, Dramamine or whatever it was to stop me from throwing up in the back seat. And he gave me a little bit too much. So we got to the golf course. I was walking like a zombie for the first two holes. He finally put me on a bench. I fell asleep. They came back to get me like five hours later. I was still sleeping on the bench. <laughs> That's a true story. Well, that'll slow down your golf swing. <laughs> that will definitely slow down my golf swing. So before we leave Ireland as a topic... Now, you once told me that the Irish don't eat corned beef and cabbage, which crushed my wife after she made a special dinner for you on St. Patrick's Day. So is that true? That is true, yeah. Well, in Ireland, they don't eat much corned beef and cabbage. Uh, they do in America, but not in Ireland. I didn't grow up eating it, no. Okay, so that's a myth. and It's a conspiracy by the Cabbage Growers Association, I would imagine. Well, they eat what they call right. bacon and cabbage. You know, bacon and cabbage is a very okay. mainstay dish over there, which is boiled bacon. It's just not pickled like corned beef, that's all. And not necessarily on St. Patrick's Day. They just eat it as a matter of course. They eat that a Sunday dinner, yeah. So talking about food, how and why did you start out as a chef? How'd that happen? Growing up golfing since I was like five, six years old, you know, not my serious golfing, but just kids golf with my father and stuff like that. And my friends, my father and mother were always in the food and beverage industry. My father's whole family was in the food and beverage industry. So we were living in Ireland. My father got a job at Edmondstown Golf Club owning the food concession. It was like a, a bid that he had taken over, like to run it as a business. So my mother would be working with him in there. So my house was actually on the golf property, like in the parking lot, a cottage. And basically for the next two years, I was helping them out in the kitchen when I was like 11, 12, 13 years old. I uh, was helping the pro in the pro shop. This was Peter O'Connor, which is Chris O'Connor's nephew. He was a golf pro at this club at the time. So I would work with him in the, in the shop and then I'd pick up range balls for him. I would help the superintendent you know, on the grounds crew, doing stuff on the golf course. I was just uh, around the club every day. I lived right there. So, but uh, a lot of time spent in the kitchen. So you're saying, in effect, it was an apprenticeship. Yeah, it was an early apprenticeship. Yeah. You were well into your culinary career when you changed direction though. I mean, what made you go from food service to golf? Well, let's back it up a little bit. When I was 15 years old in Ireland, I was offered a job to be an assistant or apprentice golf pro at Royal Dublin for Leonard Owens, who was the head professional at the time, because he was a really good friend of my father's. And I chose not to do it because assistant pros back in the late 70s, early 80s did not really make a good living. You know, let's say that. And I wanted to have a job. And the only way you ever leave your house is when you have enough money to move out of your house. So uh, that's what most young people did in Ireland growing up. You wanted to leave your home. So uh, I decided on it to get what I considered a real job, little did I know. But I, so I started as an apprentice in the training program to become a chef. Okay. After high school. Yeah, after high school. But I mean, you, you had some pretty significant achievements as a chef. I mean, you were a big time chef in New York City. Were you married at the time? When I came over from Ireland, I was uh, 21. And my wife, Jillian, who's my girlfriend then, my wife now of 32 years, we were not married yet. We got married in... 86. So we got married. Yeah, we came over in 84. So two years later, we got married in America. So I got married while I was a chef. Yes. 
Okay. So play it out for me. I mean, you come home one day and you say, I don't want to be a chef anymore. I no. want to be a golf pro. I mean, how no, that- it's a little weird. It's a little dark, I'll be honest with you. But it's uh, the truth of the matter is that my father and I didn't always have a great relationship. And he always busted my chops about not being a golf pro. But in a horrible situation was that I was not actually super happy with the hours or the commitment with being a chef in New York City because it was just every day, seven days a week. And you're always working when everyone else is having fun. That's also tough. But I wouldn't give him the satisfaction of letting him know that, that he was right and I was wrong. Unfortunately, my father had a heart attack and passed away over here in America. And to be honest with you, on the plane ride back after his funeral, I told my wife I was going to do a different, I was going to leave cooking and do something different. At the time, I didn't know what that was. But as it turned out, I went for an interview at Casino Park Golf Course, not to be a golf pro, but just to work there to do a little bit of everything. And it turned out that a year later, I was the general manager. Huh. Now, were you naturally gifted in golf or was it something you had to work at? Gifted? I think that passion creates, becomes gifted, I guess to say. I mean, you know, it's like gifted to be a tour player. No, because I didn't have the time or I wouldn't say desire. You always had a desire, but the time or the resources to focus that much on the game. I don't think I had that, but I just love the the overall understanding of the game of golf, not just playing golf, but everything like caddying or tournament operations or all that stuff. It was all appealing to me. So with that said, I think that looking back, I think that a golf professional is the right term for what I wanted to be. You know, a few people from what I know, because I was with you before you had your card and I was unaware of what it takes to earn your PGA card. And I learned it through you. And I think few people understand that it's not just being a good golfer. Can you give us a quick overview of all the things that you need to do to get your PGA card? Sure. Well, there's really two ways to do it. Number one is you go to college and you go to PGM college, as many of them around the country. You actually enroll a regular college. You get a four-year degree in whatever major you're going to do. And while you're doing that, you're also attending the PG professional training program, which is a four-year apprenticeship while you're in college. During the summers, when you're off school, you're interning for other clubs and resorts around the world. And then you come back, you finish, you get your, you graduate, you get your degree, and you actually graduate as a PGA professional. And then you go off and get a job, generally speaking, as an assistant pro, teaching pro of something. You, you, never, you never walk out of college as a head professional. So that's the more mainstream, I would say now, is the more mainstream. The second way, which is what I did, because I didn't go to college in this country, is that I came here and I worked for a class A PGA professional and I was his apprentice. It's You get one credit a month for three years. That's 36 credits. And then you have to do three different school courses within the PGA level one, two, and three. You have to pass all them. You also have to pass a PGA playing ability test, which is 36 holes one day. It's the course rating multiplied by two at 15 shots. Generally speaking, for the average golf course, 156, 157 for men, about 160, 161 for women. You have to pass that one time in your life to prove that you can play golf, then you graduate as we become a PGA professional. Do you have to keep a, a handicap at a certain level to maintain your card or just pass it once and then you're good to go? You do not have to keep it going. You know, Generally speaking, you're playing in tournaments, you're playing in this. As a club professional, basically, you have to remember there's different types of clubs. Let's say that for a second. There's public golf, resort golf, private golf courses, and even in the private golf courses or resorts, there's extremely expensive clubs, there's average clubs, and there's, you know, local country clubs. Every club has different aspirations for their head professional. Some head professionals basically just play. They don't have responsibilities for anything except that. They don't even teach golf. They just play with the members and 
more of an ambassador for the club. Then there's head professionals who play and teach and play with their members. And there's pros who never get a chance to play because they're basically administrators at their courses. So, you know, it's like uh, the title golf professional in itself is, you know, playing, teaching, working kind of thing. Now, you worked your way up. You had a, at least three, four different assistant pro positions, right? Before you got your, your head pro job at Northport? Right. Yes. That's a long grind. I mean, was there any point in your journey where you just wanted to give it give it up and go back to being a chef? I don't know if I wanted to give it up to being a chef. Uh, definitely, you're always waiting for that big break, that chance to get something. And I remember being commie chef, which is a trainee chef, getting your first chance to be the head chef where you're in charge of your own kitchen. That position is really what you're trying to attain. So when I was an assistant golf pro, I was married with two children living in a one-bedroom apartment. And so, yeah, it got to be, will I ever get my chance? Will I ever get my break? And you have to, to make it to get that shot. You have to differentiate yourself from other people, meaning you've got to spend more time away from your family to teach junior golf and to donate your time to the association, go to rules exams, go to courses, seminars. You just cannot sit at your own club and just wait for it to come to you. And most pros, most guys in your position, stay at their clubs a very long time. I mean, you've been at North Fork 21 years. So that makes it really difficult for young people to move into those positions. Do you see that changing at all? And does that affect the number of people who are trying to become head pros? Well, golf in general, I think, is not where it was in the 80s. You know, it's definitely stepping back a little bit. Uh, we call it the tiger effect. You know, when Tiger was in his prime, golf was booming. But I think that it has slowed down a little bit over the years in my situation. In the Mets section where I'm the head professional, a lot of my peers are in their position similar to me. And a lot of their assistants who become PGA members who are working for them do tend to leave and go to other places. Like I've had in my 21 years, I've had three assistant pros to move on to be head professionals elsewhere. So my job as the head professional is not just to the club, but also to mentor the people who work for me and help them move on because I didn't plan on going anywhere and I'm trying to help them achieve what I've gotten. So, Would you say there's an average length of time that people stay assistant professionals and maybe a limit when they should maybe throw in the towel if it gets to be too long? Well, it depends what they're looking for. A lot of assistant pros don't want to be head professionals. Don't want to be. Yeah, some don't want to be. I know quite a few don't have no intention ever to be a, go- a head professional because they don't want that responsibility. They love to play, teach, and they can make a great living being a teaching professional like some of the great teachers in the country. They don't, they're not head professionals. They're a Ledbetter, a Jim McLean, and a lot of people work for those and become famous teachers to regular golfers, mini tour players, tour players. So that's what they aspire to be. What would you say is the toughest part of being a head pro? I mean, I know one thing we've talked about in the past is you have to keep up your game. I mean, you've got a lot of things to do, whether it's teaching, running a shop, whatever the scope of your responsibilities are, which are more business-oriented than sports-oriented. So keeping that balance is difficult because if you're not a good player, people lose respect for you as a head pro. So how do you balance that? That's a great question. You know, a lot of it has to do with the club you work for. As I said before, my club in particular, do they care if I play? Of course they care if I play. Do they care if I shoot 65 or 75? No, they don't care if I shoot 65 or 75. If I shoot 85, they might have a concern, <laughs> but they don't care if I shoot in the mid-70s when I'm playing with them. And when I travel, 
I do a lot of traveling with members. So when I travel with them, like I'm working 24 seven, I'm making sure their bags get on the plane. I'm, I'm helping carry their clubs to the car. I'm doing all these. I'm not really concerned with my game. When we start playing at other golf courses, I'm helping them on the range before I'm working on my own swing. And so it is what it is. I mean, it's like I'm there for them, you know, so I'm not, I'm not there for myself. I know that you've tried to uh, fix my swing over the years. And so you see a lot of swings. What would you say is the biggest mistake you see average golfers making consistently, either in their swings or course management? With their swings, too many people read Golf Digest and they think that every single tip is directly at them. You know, so they come to me and said, you know, I was working on this thing. They said, don't go over the top. I said, that's exactly what you're doing now. You shouldn't, don't experiment unless a golfer is watching you do something. Or when I'm giving a lesson to somebody, here's another one. I'm teaching somebody on the range. I'm having my video camera there. I'm teaching someone for an hour and someone behind me is listening and they come back the next day and said, you know, that was a terrible lesson. I didn't get anything out of that. I said, I wasn't talking to you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> just because I'm working with something on one specific thing with somebody doesn't mean that that's the right fix for somebody else. Yeah. I can't tell you the number of times I've been standing on a, at a driving range and listening to someone give somebody golf lessons and it makes my head want to explode. I mean, because they're saying stuff that I just think makes no sense. But yeah. the things that you've taught me. Oh, well, that was a long time ago. Hopefully you're better since then. <laughs> I, I don't know. You haven't seen me hit the ball in a while. I'm not sure about that. Do you have a swing thought that you use or that you tell people to use? Yeah, keep it simple. You know, just, uh, no, honestly, it's like, like anything else. If you're lifting weights or you're running or something, that there's a proper way your body has to be. So before you even swing a golf club, your posture has to be correct. I'm talking standing in athletic position with the weight on the balls of your feet, not the heels or the toes, equal balance between left and right foot for an iron and getting your posture correct. Then you put your club in there and you try to take the club away in a one piece takeaway. Why I'm saying it this way is that everything should be in a rhythm. We should have a rhythm. There shouldn't be any herky jerky. And the last thing you want to do is take that club back as fast as you can because the backswing does not hit the golf ball. It should be slow, deliberate, in sync, in rhythm and ready to go. Yeah. You said your dad was a student of Gary Player. Do you have a player on the pro tour that you, whose swing you try to emulate or do you think that represents the best swing out there? As a kid growing up, it was always great players, you know, and then, and then a new kid comes up block and it was Watson, it was Nick Price, then it was Rory, it was uh, Faldo. It was, there's so many growing up, but honestly, you know, the latest one is this new hotshot kid who's coming out now, Cameron something. I can't remember his name to be honest with you. He just won the tour event. But yeah, he swings it so fast, so hard. He's hitting it a mile. But so everyone's talking about him. It's the latest and the newest kind of thing, you know. But I, for me, consistency is by far the biggest. When Tiger was in his prime, it was just, it was amazing to watch how everyone fell apart around him. Do you have a point of view on, you know, Mo Norman in the single plane swing? And I guess now that that's the next generation of that is, is DeChambeau. Do you teach that at all? Or do you have a point of view on whether or not that makes sense for some golfers? Or any golfers? I had the opportunity to actually go to a clinic with Mo Norman down in Florida that when I was playing in the mini circuits in Northern Florida for Craig Shanklin when he was teaching there and I was actually there in the clinic with him. So that was a great experience. But the single plane swing is something I teach. No, it is not something I teach because I don't think the average person can grasp it unless you're really a student of the game and you want to focus on that one fundamental because it is a little different. Well, for starters, you have the ball way back in your stance. Correct. Yeah. And I played with golf professors who do that style. And to me, it doesn't look right, to be honest with you. Not that it isn't right. It's just that you have to unlearn what you know to start that style. 
you know so if, if you want to be that style by all means continue it you know the one length thing is different though that's shampoo that's his own unique thing where every club's the same length yeah he cut his clubs down yeah yeah that well, seems to be working for him of late so listen as a club pro let's get back to that for a second what would you say the smartest thing you've done is and what the dumbest thing is the smartest thing i did was uh, accept the job to be a head pro at north Fork country club <laughs> Because that that enabled me not only to find a home for the past 21 years, but also to uh, get my first house, put my kids through college. And then I have the opportunity to work with my wife at the shop. She's the shop manager. We own the shop. So, uh, you know, family business kind of thing. So uh, that was my smartest thing I ever did. The dumbest thing I ever did in the golf business? I'm not sure there's a dumbest thing I've ever done. That was a mean question. No, not at all. No. So I know that over the years, Peter, you've been a big supporter of junior golf. You were pretty active for a while there. Is there more the PGA should be doing or can be doing to instill you know, love for the game in kids? I think that they've done an tremendous amount over the last couple of years with golf play chip, you know, with Augusta National Dow being a forefront for this uh, junior event every year, which is amazing to see. It's fun to watch. But they have a lot of uh, junior golf league is another one that's relatively new. The last couple, not new, new, but last couple of years where a lot of kids are getting into golf now, which is really the future of golf. If we don't get the young people to play, there will not be a future in golf. So all these things we're doing for junior golf is prolonging our sport. But is there something more they can do? There's always more they can do. But I think that on a scorecard, they're doing a great job with junior golf as a whole. Yeah. I don't know if you've read any of Tom Coyne's books, but one of the points that he makes, because he's he's played almost every course in Ireland and Scotland, is that over in Ireland and Scotland, the golf courses are, it's like a, a public facility. It's not considered a rich man's sport. It's something that people do. It's not the culture here where it's viewed and played pretty much as, with the exception of, you know, public golf, but the number of private courses and private clubs make it somewhat of an elitist activity. Do you see that changing and, or does it have to change for golf to survive over here? I don't know if it needs to change. I think the model we have now is, as I said before, there's several different levels of private clubs, whereas where I'm on the North Fork of Long Island, where on the South side, where we have the very prestigious clubs in the Hamptons, they're over a million dollars to join. That's, and that I would consider as a rich man's sport. But you also have amazing golf courses around in America and the world that are not that expensive to join. It's more of a community, like mine. It's more of a community club. I would say average price, not compared to the million dollars, but it's an old golf course. Like you said, it's a Donald Ross design, the only one in Long Island. So there's a lot of great courses out there that don't cost a million dollars, but there's a lot of golf courses that are, are very expensive to join. And even if, honestly, there's, there's golf courses that you could have all the money in the world, but you can never get into because they're very private. But there's, uh, if you travel Virginia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Florida, there's amazing golf courses down there that are, like you said, daily fee, resorts, public, that anyone can play and have an amazing time. So I think wherever you want to find the golf, you can find it if that's what you're looking for. Yeah. So you can play any kind of club and ball that you want. Matter of fact, you probably have manufacturers all trying to get you to play their equipment. What do you play, both in terms of clubs and ball? The last couple of years, I've been very fortunate. I've been on the uh, Callaway uh, staff. I play Callaway equipment and use their golf ball. Why? Um, uh, it has to do with relationships with the, the vendors and stuff like that. But also, like you said, I can play any clubs and I, I don't have to pay for them. So it's great to get them. But why do I play them? I like the construction. I like the feel. And honestly, uh, when I pick up a club, I can basically hit any club, but there's something that just feel better than others. And that's just from my particular swing. And you could say, well, you can put any shaft in one. And I do. I can put any shaft, graphite, steel, whatever I want. But 
there's always a look when you look at a club you like wow that looks good you look at other clubs like i don't like the look of it so i've switched over the years i've been in all fairness i've been on ping staff tideless staff callaway staff I'm trying to think of any other no, I, I think that's pretty much it uh cobra i was on cobra staff when you're on a particular uh staff do you feel an obligation to promote those clubs more heavily with your members? Uh, no, no, I don't. I do try to have my staff use different equipment. My current staff, I have one who plays Cobra clubs and I have a female assistant. She's on XEO staff. So we have each oh. pro has different. And uh, basically at my particular club, I have a ping fitting system, a calorie fitting system, Titleist fitting system. I have Cobra demos, uh, TaylorMade demos. I have all of it. And when I do a fitting, it takes about an hour, an hour and a half to do a complete fitting. I have every company out there. I have them hit everything and they ask me, what do I think? I want them to tell me, rank each set from one to 10 and we'll eliminate the high five. We'll keep the best five and we'll do more testing until they tell me which one they want. I don't actually tell them. Yeah. I might give my advice on which one flies better, which one you hit more consistent. That's just data. That's not my opinion, but that's just by the raw data from the launch monitor we're using or something like that. I can show them the results. So do you have any personal sources of inspiration, either an individual or a book or videos that you use to, because you don't really have a boss other than all of the members of your club. I mean, you're really in business for yourself. So what do you use to to stay motivated? In my current role or? Yeah, or in life in general. I mean, do you have a particular person that you follow or book series that you read or? To be honest with you, just my wife, <laughs> just my wife, you know, uh, we work, as I said, we work together, we do everything together. She's my right hand at work. So she takes a lot of the stress away from me so I can focus on doing the golf aspect of the business. She takes care of the business. I can focus on that. So I like to teach. I like to do the junior golf. I like to do the, believe it or not, the boring stuff, which some people might consider boring, but I like to, the challenge of the budgets and numbers and making sure everything's match. And then I sit down with, as you said, my golf chairman and we figure things out. You know, running tournaments is another one. I like to take pride in running all the tournaments and uh, making sure everyone who comes has a great time. So you have dual citizenship in, in Ireland and in America. Do you think of yourself still as, as being Irish or how do you sort that out in your mind? Do you still stay connected with Ireland? Oh, I'm very connected. Yeah, well, my wife and I, as I said, my wife was born there, raised there. I was born in America, raised in Ireland. And you know, it's, do I consider myself Irish? Yes, I do. And why is that? Because it's how I grew up. The values I got from my parents who were Irish and all my friends in high school and junior high. And it is who I was, you know, when I was, you know, nine to 21 years old, it sort of formed the person you're going to be kind of thing, your values. So I think that was uh, instilled on me when I grew up. And yes, I'm here now. And do I consider myself American? Yeah, I guess. Yes. But, you know, in my heart, am I still Irish? Yes. So who do you root for with the Ryder Cup? Uh, you're <laughs> okay. That, uh, that nails it. <laughs> but in all fairness, though, in all fairness, I root for. I actually had an opportunity to take members to the Ryder Cup in, in Glen Eagle, Scotland. And when I was over there, my staff decorated my whole desk in American gear. Kept taking pictures of it and sending it to me. You know, with fake scores on my computer, which was pretty funny. But I do when I when I, to be honest with you, when I'm, when I'm watching the Ryder Cup or rooting for the Ryder Cup, I'm actually rooting for matches more than the result. If that makes sense. Because I sort of follow certain people. I look for matches that are great matches. Like, oh, come on, you can do better than that. So. i got a couple more questions. What's your advice for someone who wants to be a club professional? Should they go to golf school? Are personal relationships as important as degrees and playing ability and, and ultimately getting a head pro position? I think relationships are extremely important to getting a head professional position. And 
I got some advice a long time ago from a pro in my section. I went to a seminar. He gave some advice that I still remember today. He said, always remember that you're a golf professional, even before you're a golf professional. What he meant by that is that when you're playing with golf with people in a pro-am, you're coming to a club, you're playing public golf, act like a professional, treat everyone like they're important to you and always be respectful. So you know, what that means is don't joke around, don't act like an idiot because you never know who's watching. So when you're playing in these tournaments and you do well in an event and a member from another club is there playing with, with his pro, he remembers you because you made an impression on him. And you never know when this person's going to be on a committee in the future that has a position that you apply for. You never know when that's going to happen. Are there any topics that uh, you want to talk about that we haven't covered? Uh, I don't, the only thing we haven't covered is how we met. <laughs> okay, you tell me. Well, as you pointed out about 34 minutes ago, was that I worked at Brooklyn Country Club in Fairfield, Connecticut, where you were a member of the club. My wife and I, unfortunately, could not come back to America with me. So I had to come back by myself and left my family in Ireland just for the season. I was renting an apartment in, in town in Fairfield, and it was a crazy situation. I had told you about it, and you invited me to your house for a dinner party. I was very nervous because, uh, you know, it was a very prestigious club, and I didn't know anybody. And of course, I'm by myself and everyone else's couples. And I did what I could to help out with a dinner party, like, you know, help this, help that, help your wife and stuff like that. And so anyway, I remember sitting in your dining room, beautiful laid out, candles on the tables and everything. And I'm sitting there going, don't mess up, don't mess up, don't mess up. And of course, what do I do? I reach for the bread and I burn my wrist on a little candle. So I turn the candle and set your table on fire. I do remember that now. <laughs> What's the second part of that one is that another couple that was at your dinner party, very nice couple, heard my story, asked me if I would come to their house for a drink. I'm like, oh my God, they want me to set fire to their house. So I, I went to their house and they basically adopted me and, and made, moved me into their home and made me part of their family. So thank you for bringing me to your dinner party, inviting me to those, invite and introduce me to those people. Well, you know what? There's the validation of your philosophy that personal relationships are can be more important than playing ability and, and degrees. And uh, you have proof of that. So thanks, Peter. I really appreciate you spending time with me today. And uh, one of these days, I promise to come out there and play your course. I know I've been threatening to do that for 15 years now, 20 years? 20 years, 20 years, yeah, yeah, <laughs> 20 years. Or we go play St. Andrews together, one or the other, and you can wear your kilt. I, I would love to do that. I'm bringing my kids over to Scotland next summer just to show them the, the homeland, but I won't have my clubs with me, so. Oh, God. So thanks again, Peter. I really appreciate it. Hi, you're welcome. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Golf Yeah, featuring another success story from the business side of golf. Maybe it's time to get more serious about making golf the center of your life, not just the highlight of your weekend. Head over to GolfYeah.com for more great content, including show notes, testimonials, and links to valuable resources. That's G-O-L-F-Y-E-A-H.com. 